Welcome back to another episode of the Born Again Again podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to say a quick reminder that our book club is now officially live, and last week we released episode 44, where Katie and I go through the insane Christian parenting book, Growing Kids God's Way. I was raised on that book, uh, and it was equally triggering and therapeutic to go through it as an adult and understand a little bit more about how I became who I am today. You can find that episode as well as the book club on our Patreon. And finally, I want to give a shout out to all of you who've signed up for Patreon in the last week, but especially Aaron and David. We are so thankful that you all are along on this journey with us, and we can't wait to get to know you all more. All right, so today's episode is an interview with Jamie Lee Finch. I'm sure that many of you already know her from her book, You Are Your Own. Um, A couple weeks ago, we did a poll on Instagram, kind of asking all of you guys for what the most impactful books have been for you uh, in this deconversion, deconstruction process. And by far, You Are Your Own had more votes than any other book. So Jamie, in addition to an author, is also an embodiment coach, acting, as she puts it, as a mediator between you and your body. And so in our conversation, we talk about that feeling of overwhelm when you're first leaving your faith. We talk about the importance of reconnecting with your body and what that can look like. And then we also dive into the importance and beauty of grief and about the healing power of connecting with your anger. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks so much for talking to us. I've had so many people from our podcast telling us like, hey, that that you are your own book. That one is the one that really did it for me. That's the one that changed my life. You have to read it. You have to read it. And so somehow it like slipped under Katie and my radar for the longest time. Um, but I picked it up last month and read through it. And I was like, oh my God, I've been, <laughs> I've been missing out on this forever. It feels like it feels so different to me from a lot of the other ex-Christian material because I don't know, mm. something about your voice sounds very relatable to me. Maybe it's just the fact that you're younger or like you're really cool. I don't know, something something just really, really hit. And uh, yeah, it was really mm-hmm. enjoyable to read. So thanks a lot for agreeing to talk. Mm. To thanks for saying that. That yeah. means a lot to me on both fronts, like to know that it meant something for you specifically, but also that... I don't know. It's cool. It never, I mean, I don't know. It's only existed for a year and a half, but so far it has never gotten old to hear feedback that with you saying like, you've heard people tell you, this is the book that really did it for me. That yeah. is, that feels really special. Cause it was, it was a really hard book to write. <laughs> so, yeah. I bet, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it really hard in terms of like researching and stuff for the book or more of that? It was just so personal and so heavy. Listen, the reason why the book is what it is and like with what you're saying about there's something different about it, something special about it. Maybe it's because you're younger. Maybe it's because, you know, whatever. that what's funny is I'm the one like getting credit for that. But all of that credit belongs to my thesis advisors <laughs> because they were the ones who because what wasn't difficult was the research. Okay. I wanted to stay in research and be nice and comfy and cozy in research and if left to my own devices, I would have just written like a 150 page long research paper and it mm-hmm. would not have been that book. And fortunately, um, I had two absolutely incredible advisors that at first I was like, they're asking me to do stuff they can't possibly understand because they didn't have this life experience. And so mm-hmm. they don't have the awareness I have. But turns out they <laughs> knew more than I knew because they're turns academic they're advisors. Right. Turns out they were correct. Um, and one of them in particular just really drove it home for me that he was like, you, all this information is great, but we have to cut you off at a certain point. You can't mm-hmm. keep turning in statistics and information and research because there's nothing tying this together. And yeah. there wasn't my first draft. It was supposed to take me a year because that was the length of the thesis, uh, the time it was supposed to take, air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a month out from that year deadline, it was a very different piece. And it okay. was not compelling. And it was just a lot of information. I waxed on for like 30 pages about how shitty St. Augustine was and why. Like, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, it felt cathartic to get that out. But it just, right. nobody needed to read that. Like, yeah, yeah. So like half the shit I waxed on about, you could Google. And so he was like, <laughs> we don't know why this matters to you. And that's the thing I was afraid of was digging around in my own story. And honestly, for very good reason, because um, a couple months after I made the decision to not 
graduate, not finish it and take another semester to keep working on it. I drove to home to St. Louis from Nashville and to basically take six boxes of stuff from my dad's basement back to Nashville with me, which it was six boxes of my childhood, adolescence and early twenties. It was like journal entries. It was, you know, printed out AOL instant messenger conversations. It was notes from, from notes from sermons, like photo albums from summer camps and mission trips. It was, I saved everything. And I thought I, and I, it's not that what I thought I remembered about my developmental evangelical developmental experience was wrong. It just, Mm -hmm. I even sugarcoated it in my own consciousness, opening up those boxes and reading the shit that I believed about myself. And I wrote about myself and I prayed over myself. And I, that was horrifying. I didn't write for two weeks. I didn't work on the book for two weeks because I just cried for two weeks. Yeah. And what the book became, I very much feel is a, is a product of the fact that I kind of on a very real, like literally and metaphorically, I guess, like went back home and through space and time grabbed my younger self and took her with me, like out of it. Like I felt very much like I had left her behind. Like when adult me left evangelicalism, I left child me behind because she, she had never really gotten to tell me how bad it was. So the book exists how it exists now because I felt very prompted to go back and let her tell me about how bad it really was. So, yeah. So again, that's why it means so much to me that it matters to people because it was fucking hard, man. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And I I really honestly feel like it comes through. And that's such a like beautiful way you put that, that you went back and you Mm -hmm. kind of picked up your old self and you, you know, Mm -hmm. you brought your old self through all that stuff that you were never able to do at the time. It feels like that. I, I hope this sounds like a compliment, but I, when I read the book, I, I felt like you were like my really cool sister who had gone, who had like left home a couple years before me and like kind of gone through the difficulty of breaking away from your parents. And now you're like, okay, come here. Like, here's how it goes. This is what happened to you. This is what you're going to go through. This is how it feels. Um, yeah. It was just a, it was like oh a really God. nice hug. It was good. I was like the Zoe Deschanel to whatever his name is in Almost Famous. I don't know the actor's <laughs> name, but yeah. William is the, the character, I think, like where she's like, someday you'll be cool. Like you'll like uh-huh. check under your bed. Like, someday you'll get it. <laughs> That's exactly. Cool. That's exactly. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It felt exactly like that. Great. <laughs> yeah. I love it. This is great. Um, so you you wrote the book and then how did you go from author of You Are Your Own to now you're an embodiment coach? Um, What did that process look like and kind of what, what made you choose the embodiment route? Mm -hmm. That one actually came first. Oh, it did. Yeah. So I've been doing, I got my coaching certification to do something that looked much more like, um, like health and wellness type coaching. So body work, but definitely through not trauma informed and in a lot of ways, very ableist, very capitalist, very, um, Definitely very diet culture to be honest with you. There's a lot I'm grateful for in my coaching certification. Mm-hmm. I mean, it taught me how to be a facilitator, um, but there's a lot that I've left behind from it. But one of the benefits it did do when I first started holding space for people as a coach, talking with people about their relationship with their bodies, what it did do for me is it got me to this point where people were opening up about um, imbalances or illnesses or chronic pain or things Mm -hmm. like that. And actually the reason why the book exists is because of my coaching work, because the timeline of what actually happened is I had been taking clients for a little while. And I noticed that I was actually pretty bad at being a health coach because being a health coach means like you work with people for six months and they achieve their goals. And like (laughs) no one that I was working with was achieving their goals because instead I was like, well, what's underneath what's going on? Like, let's talk about your, like the real, the fundamental relationship between you and your body, who taught you to believe what about, about your body. So two things emerged from that. Number one was the framework that I work with now, which is um, centering this idea of centering the personhood of your body. So your body is not an object, your body is a personhood. So exchanging the the pronoun of it for a pronoun of he, she, or they opens up this whole new world of behavior, 
um, as information, um, pain, or any sort of physical sensation as communication from the person of your body. So centering this idea that our bodies deserve our compassion and our curiosity because they have been there bearing witness to everything we've ever been told to believe about them. Yeah. And so what's that was the first thing that started to emerge was this like, well, what were you told to believe about your body? Who told you that your body shouldn't be doing what your body's doing? Or with a lot of the women I was working with, they were working with this idea of like um, trying to, you know, it's a very typical diet culture thing, like trying to lose weight. And so trying to not eat certain foods and eat other foods. And I kept being like, well, who told you not to eat that? Yeah. Who told you food is bad? Who told you that your body being larger is bad? Let's look at these stories. Let's not put you on a diet or like a exercise regimen. Cause it just felt so fundamentally antithetical to my journey with my body, which is a, probably a different story for another time. But, sure. um, the other thing that emerged right before I went back to school, um, in fall of 2016 is I noticed this common theme with the people I've been working with, um, that, and at the time it was just cisgendered women. I work with people of all genders mm-hmm. always have it just at the time I had just started, I was just starting out and it was just cisgendered women, sure. but every one of the women I was working with had an autoimmune disease and every single one of them had been raised with purity culture. Yeah. And so I started to connect this thing. I remember, early fall, late summer, 2016, just Googling autoimmune disease, purity culture to see if anyone had ever researched a link between, oh, I don't know, a a religious ideology that said that your body is bad and sinful and you need to, you know, essentially hate it in order to (laughs) survive and thrive in the world. And, oh, I don't know, bodies who start attacking themselves, like your immune system is attacking a certain part of your body. So like, there's that feels similar to me <laughs> right, being well acquainted, be having, having chronic illness yeah. and dealing with autoimmune deficiency and also being raised in purity culture. And no, there's, there's like, there was no link out there. So the school that I went to at the time is um, it's called Goddard college. It's mm-hmm. a progressive institution, progressive education. And their whole model is like, what do you want to study? what can we, what can you and we build your curriculum into? So the first thing that I decided, the first paper I ever wrote was dissecting purity culture. And then the second paper I wrote was trying to build this link between, okay, if we're taught to believe this about our bodies and we know the the science of uh, psychoneuroimmunology and the things that, you know, what we believe about ourselves and our bodies does influence the way our bodies live and move through the world. And we have data on this. Uh, do we think that maybe there is a link between chronic illness and sexual, uh, sexually suppressive, like a sexual, uh, religious ethic that purports like sexual suppression. So, um, the embodiment work came first and the book grew out of an institution, academic institution saying like, yeah, go with this curiosity because we Mm -hmm. think there's something valuable here. Um, and then in turn that kind of went back and continued to shape my coaching work and my embodiment work in the sense that uh, more and more former evangelicals were finding me to want to work with specifically me since I had this shared language. And so every person I worked with, I was learning more in real time just about the depth of the damage of purity culture and a religious ideology like this, a very body negating religious ideology and so it just fueled, it was just like this, it feels like it all folded in on itself and fueled yeah. itself to the point where I was like, oh, what I really want to hold space for with people is helping them unlearn all of this programming that we had to drill into ourselves for years about our bodies are bad, our natural instincts are bad, pleasure is bad, any form of desire is bad. If you feel like you want something, you have to go the other direction or else there might be hell to pay literally literally. and helping people unlearn that internalized story that they have a body memory of because it's traumatizing to believe those things and instead holding space for people to learn how to trust the voice of their bodies and trust their impulses instincts just straight up trust like when i hear like trust their food cravings like trust their desires like instead of immediately classifying what comes up naturally as, oh, this must be bad. Because I've been told my whole life being human is being bad. Right. Wow. Cool. That it's, that's really encouraging to hear that your, your like academic journey supported you so well through the process. It sounds like, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when I I feel like a lot of people our age are 
you know, feeling the opposite where they felt like, oh, I really wasted my time in school or whatever. It's just, mm-hmm. it's nice to hear, hear a story that works out so well, you know? Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. I've, I've been really, really surprised over and over again since I left the faith, um, how much like getting in tune, getting in touch with my own body um, has been impactful. Like that, that's been such a big impactful thing for me. And it, it was the type of thing that I didn't even realize I was missing before yeah. I started hearing about embodiment or started hearing about breath work and, you know, hearing about these people doing stuff, trying to access their inner wisdom and their intuition. And that at, at the beginning, that was all just totally foreign to me, mm-hmm. of, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I've been surprised over and over again of the things that come up and um, yeah, do, do a breathwork session and feel like I have some big revelation where I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't even realize I was in there or do mushrooms mm-hmm. with their friends and realize, mm-hmm. oh my God, I, I haven't felt anything in years, you know, yeah. and realize <laughs> my feelings are unlocked. I have feelings, holy cow, this is a lot to yeah. deal with. I, you know, so it's, it's really exciting, but at the same time, it feels really overwhelming at times because mm-hmm. all of it's so new. And I yeah. think like for me, it was so fast. It felt like once, mm-hmm. once a few of the first like big um, pillars of Christianity started falling down for myself, it was like stuff started coming faster and faster and it was overwhelming and it was confusing. Yeah. Um, and so I, that was another question I had is I, I think a lot of people kind of get that feeling of overwhelm in the beginning. And especially mm-hmm. when you start reading some books, even like yours, you read your book and you feel like, oh my God, I, I can tell I have a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. but I like have no idea where to start. You know, mm-hmm. um, where do you start with your clients? Like if someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I just left my faith. I'm freaking out. I, f- I feel like I have so much stuff in here. You know, where do people mm-hmm. start? Mm-hmm there everyone's entry point is a little bit different and it usually usually the entry point for each individual person is kind of is determined by the the area in their life that they're feeling kind of the most resistance within regarding mm-hmm. their belief system changing okay so that might be their marriage they're like i'm I believe something different. My spouse does not. And I'm feeling a lot of tension resistance. So this impulse of something in me telling me I should stay where I am, Mm. but there's something deeper in me telling me there's somewhere else I have to go. And so again, that could be a relationship that could be, um, a job. I mean, you could be a pastor and experience that and that's, that can fuck you up real nice. (laughs) Um, that could be, um, that could be your sexuality. That could be you recognizing, realizing like, Oh, the whispers of something other than heterosexual have been there my whole life. I've been holding them at bay because that's what I thought I had to do. But again, there's this, there's this thing kind of higher in my chest telling me stay where you are. It's too scary to keep going, but there's Mm -hmm. this thing deeper in the pit of my stomach saying we can't we can't ignore this anymore. We have to move forward. Yeah. So generally when I'm, when I'm doing a consultation with someone, um, they, I mean, I've been working off a wait list for a significant period of time, but I've, I've restructured some stuff. So it's a bit more open to kind of, um, first come first serve, like in the moment now, mm-hmm. in, in a sense, sort of, but before I even get on a call with someone, they have to answer just some really two really simple preliminary questions about, um, the kind of the core desires coming up for them and the core fears coming up for them. Okay. So I get a sense of what's up here. What's that? What's the, the voice that's telling you, I guess it's kind of, this is a podcast, me pointing to certain <laughs> parts. That's not going to translate, but what's that? What's the thing that feels more on the surface that's telling you, be afraid of this. Don't keep yeah, going. What's, yeah. what's that messaging? And so I get a handle on like, what are those uh, maybe accusatory statements of like, don't, don't keep going or you're going to be in trouble. But, but what's the core desire though? What's the deeper voice telling you? We have to keep going because what I actually want is this. And yeah. so once we get to the point where we're on the consultation where I do a jump off point from the core desire, core fear, we get to know each other a little bit better. But when I, once they're like, Hey, let's, let's move forward. If they're like, I want to keep going with you. And I'm like, you feel like a good fit. Let's keep going. Our initial sessions that we start with, I do initial sessions before I go into a program commitment because at every turn with what I do, I've designed it to be 
very much you call the shots because again, I'm working predominantly with a population of people who've been told what to do their whole lives. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to play, I'm not going to trigger that in right. you. So yeah. no, even if you're like the most confident in the world that you want to do my whole four to six month long program, you still have to do two introductory sessions that are pay as you go. Where at the end of that second one, you get to tell me if you want to keep going or if you've got everything you need and you're good. Yeah. So in those two intro sessions, we start going through my intake form. And that intake form starts to build a bit more off of the core fears. Okay. So the intake form is like these 15 areas where we start going through them. With most people, we don't even finish the intake form because it's designed to take a lime and go really deep where okay. we're digging into kind of getting really curious about what the origin stories of your self-beliefs about, about your beliefs about yourself and your body yeah. and just other people's bodies and the world around you. What are they and where did they come from? Yeah. So we're digging into questions like gender, biological sex assignment, religion of origin, um, ancestry, ethnicity. Um, so we're, I mean, this is a, with everything that was going on in this, this summer with like, you know, correct criticisms of white people in the wellness space, not mm -hmm. talking about whiteness. I was like, mm -hmm. y'all have been doing it for three years. <laughs> I've been like digging around and like, what is your ethnicity and your ancestry taught you about your body and yeah. your place in the world and the way you move through the world? Because white evangelical Christianity is a white supremacist institution. So if I'm working with folks, whether they are white or not, if they are, have come from white evangelical Christianity, I've worked with a number of black folks and people of color who came from that institution, they've also been taught to believe some things about themselves yeah, that, yeah, from that institution. So we're digging into those like core, core stories, core things that shaped your subconscious, that shaped your relationship to your idea of who you are and who mm -hmm. you're allowed to be in the world. And then over time, over the months of us working together and we build this rapport and we build this space of trust. And I'm not, I don't think I've ever really like explained it quite this way because what really I'm doing and what really is happening, but it doesn't come acro across quite this like um, formulaic, but sure. over time where this is why we, most of us don't finish the form is because those old stories stop mattering so much because we're getting a handle on where they, where they're coming from, but we're holding space for you to be able to challenge them yourself oh, cool. yeah. in a really compassionate, really curious way. So the first bit like I'd say it's not an even half, but I'd say the first like half, so to speak, of our of the program I do with people mm -hmm. is more centered on those core fears, those core stories. And the second half is more centered on those core desires. Because really, I mean, again, I guess a good way to put it is that for people who were raised evangelical, most of our lives, we've been forced to trade what we really know for what we're told we're supposed to know. Totally. And so yeah. having a space that just lets the people I'm working with hear and know and do just like whatever they're hearing, just knowing that they're hearing it and doing what they're hearing is on its own, just really transformative and healing. And I don't anticipate, expect, nor is my aim to get people to the end of our program. And they're like, cool, done and dusted. I'm finished <laughs> here. Because again, my, my foundational concept is your body's not a project. You yeah. are not a project. You're not trying to complete it in a timeline. This is the person I'm introducing you to. Yeah. So we're going to hand you a couple of tools to do this like kind of excavation work on your own moving mm -hmm. forward. And I trust that you will continue to strengthen the connection and intimacy in your relationship with the person of your totally. body. So I would say like, if I'm not working with someone, which I will say this to you, my answer for a few years of like, where do people get started mm -hmm. apart from me has been so limited. And that's been really frustrating to me. And that's why my waitlist ballooned to 700 people. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I am now working on an online course that by the time it's done and available for people to enroll in, um, it will be self-directed. You take yourself through it. Everything will be there for you. By the time it's done, it will have taken me a year okay. and I will have poured about $20,000 <laughs> into creating okay. it. Yeah. It really fucking matters to me because I, right now I feel really limited. I'm like, yeah, I can prompt you to start getting curious about the stories. Like, what are your stories? What have you been taught to believe? And it's not like people can't do that on their own, mm -hmm. but a lot of people just, again, you got to remember you are, your subconscious was formed while you didn't have any choice, but to participate in a religious institution that told right. you, you can't do things on your own. Yeah, You need yeah. to be led. So you actually, a lot of people are coming up against a trauma response within themselves of this, like, Oh no, 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 no. I can't 
I can't start looking at my own stories because I'll deceive myself. <laughs> so ha- again, so I'm like, yeah. I haven't known how to help or what advice to give without me being like, come work with me. Yeah, but I'm one yeah. person, I'm limited. And there's only a small handful of other facilitators that I really trust to some people too. And they're all full. They all have wait lists. So trying to create this course, I think is um, my best answer for like a place to start of like who can, for people to get started without having to wait for me as a individual, literal, actual person, like Mm -hmm. helping through it. So it's kind of this like, um, brain hack of like, no, you're, you're doing it with you. You just think I'm doing it. Cause I'll, <laughs> I'll be on the screen. Right. <laughs> so you'll feel safe. <laughs> That's ideal. I feel like we need yes. a little bit of that because I know for myself, I catch myself so frequently, um, kind of looking for like formulas or looking for mm-hmm. the right way to do things, you know, and that's very likely a product of like black and white thinking from my past yeah. and, you know, always looking to external authority to tell me what I need to do and this and that. And it's, it honestly feels like something I have to be constantly vigilant about mm-hmm. is like, yeah, you know, you am I feel. trusting myself or am I not? So yeah, the way yeah. you described your course sounds amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, first of all, I feel like you mentioned earlier recreating your trauma. And I think you mentioned in your book as well that like it's mm-hmm. it's really easy to have your trauma recreated over and over again as you're leaving church. Yeah. And I know people have even had their trauma recreated by therapists they've gone to and by, yeah. by courses they've taken, or like you said, by yeah. health and wellness coaches who don't really mm-hmm. understand the issues. And so, yeah, it's, it's just really nice to know that there are more and more resources like what you're putting out there now that are specifically designed with this stuff in mind and mm-hmm. um, yeah, are helping us to learn to trust ourselves and kind of heal ourselves as opposed to waiting for someone else to give us the go ahead, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, dude. And that is the thing. Like it's this, it's this liminal space between I, I don't want people. And this is again, why the coaching work I do isn't open-ended like mm-hmm. therapy work would be. I have a clear, again, I let people, they make a commitment to minimum of four months because we're changing an entire paradigm. So it's going to take some time. So I need mm-hmm. to like go with it when it doesn't feel like it's working. Totally. Good yeah. You know, eventually will. But once we get to the end of four months, they can opt into a fifth month or be like, I've got everything I need. I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. Same thing at the end of fifth, the fifth month, they can opt into a sixth month if they need that. But at the end of six months, barring maybe in the last three and a half years, like five or six people that I've made exceptions for in very specific cases, I kind of like, I kind of kick people out because I, (laughs) what I'm really wanting to be careful of at that point is, is anyone operating under the assumption that what we just did together, they can't do without me. I see. Because again, again, I'm catching people at a really specific moment where they're fresh out of this ideology that says you need a pastor, you need a leader you need a hero, you need a guru, you mm-hmm. need a Jesus on some level. And so I'm yeah. catching people and they're like, well, I don't have Jesus anymore. So will you be, my-? and I'm not saying like <laughs> people, sometimes people have done that and I'm really aware of it. No one is meant to, but it's more like in this, like, I can't do that to you or for you. The thing you think you want from me, that would actually be really damaging for mm-hmm. you. So I, I can't do that. So it might feel scary or difficult for me to say, why don't you try this on your own? Like we just covered a lot in six months. Why don't you just try and you be with you? See yeah, what happens. Yeah. I'm here if you need a one-off session. I'm here if you need me. I have clients that will like contact me a year out and be like, I hit a wall in this thing with my body. Can you be like our mediator essentially mm-hmm. or conflict mediator and help us talk this through? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But I love that because I'm like, you're doing it on your yeah, own. Yeah. And that I think is it's this, it's this really specific middle space between people. I wouldn't be a coach if I believed that nobody needed assistance in of their course, growth. I wouldn't sure. have a therapist, my own therapist, if I believed <laughs> no one needed assistance in their growth. Mm-hmm. But I also want specifically former evangelical Christians to know that like your life is not supposed to be a life that is handheld yeah. by people you perceive to know more than you or be in a, a position of leadership above you. It's yeah. yours. It's you with you. That's so, it's so beautiful. And it's, it's like scary and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> and it's like yeah. you said, it, it does, it feels like you're kind of left out in the open and you're like, Oh, I yeah. don't know what to do. I've never trusted myself before. So like, let's give this a shot and see how it goes. Yep. That's what my deconstruction felt like. <laughs> yep. yeah. I didn't have a coach or a therapist or any friends really at the time. Yeah. I had a few, but like, yeah, it's scary. It's yeah. not fun. No, yeah. no. <laughs> cool. Um, well, yeah, I, I, have a few more questions about more specific things um, from your book. And the one thing that stuck out to me a lot um, that I felt like 
I, I didn't like really connect to, and I think it's because it's something I need to process, but you put a lot of importance on grief, um, mm-hmm. and like grief in the recovery process and grieving your loss of faith and grieving your old worldview. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and kind of what is the importance of grief in recovery? Mm. <clears throat> yeah. So two big things that come to mind with that. The first one being that one of the things that uh, Marlene Winnell talks about in her book that mm-hmm. I feel like was really beautifully laid out and it gave me language when I didn't have it was yeah. this idea of you're not just moving out of a belief system and into either another one or no belief system. Mm-hmm. You are, you're, you're losing your father. You're losing your closest companion, your closest friend. For some people, depending on, you know, the specific version of Christianity, you might be losing someone you perceive to be a lover. Mm-hmm. Like you are losing. And for me with my childhood experience, like I was losing the only safe place I had growing yeah. up in an abusive home. So the constant companion of the Holy Spirit, the eternal friend that is Jesus, the, and for many of us, I think many of us who left evangelicalism, we still share this kind of like the um, kind of teacher, the kind of person that modeled social behavior that we admired in yeah. Jesus that like, I think we took him with us <laughs> when we left, but for many of us, we think we're leaving him too, right? Yeah, first, yeah. And the eternal presence of God, the father who provides and is benevolent towards those he loves, well, we're ones that he loves. And so we're leaving these deep connections. We're not just leaving a set of ideas. Yeah. And any other context where you leave deep connections, your body experiences grief. Hmm. That is a normal reaction. We just don't really think Unless someone else, oftentimes someone else gives us permission to know that that's what's happening, which is what Marlene did for me in reading her book. Her yeah. book I was like, oh, these were, I left relationships, not just with my fellow church pals, not just the obvious relationships. I left the relationship with the, the, <laughs> the one being I always thought was there. Right. And it's also for me, the deepest grief was like, it's not just that I am now leaving that relationship. If I believe this new thing, which is that that God doesn't exist or this thing isn't real. That means seven-year-old me who was terrified and alone, who found solace and safety in her idea of God, she was alone too. Mm, that yeah. was my biggest bottom out moment. I was so in the heartbreaking. Car, unfortunately, I had to pull my car over because I couldn't see because I was sobbing so much, realizing like, oh, she was alone. I've been alone this whole time. If this yeah. is real. But, and so the... Number one, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is that like, you got to recognize you're not just leaving a set of ideas. You are disconnecting from relationships. It's a, it's a divorce. It's a death. It's all these things Mm -hmm. in the direction of someone you've, something you've conceptualized as a person or a handful of people for a very long time. And the second thing I would say is because, um, unfortunately, again, white evangelical Christianity, what most of us have come from is very disembodied. It's very Mm -hmm. anti-emotional. There are, you know, charismatic spaces where some more emotionality is allowed, but many of us don't get access to a handful of emotions. Even if we get access to emotions, like being raised Southern Baptist, I wasn't allowed to have access to any emotions. But once I got into a more charismatic space, I was allowed to have access to joy, but not anger. I was allowed to have, and like anger is part (laughs) of grief. And many, there are many emotions that were Unperm- I don't know if unpermissible. We're not permissible to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you either didn't get access to any, or and that was the way you survived and thrived inside of that world was by being very stoic and put yeah. together, or you got access to some, but not all. Yeah. And that's also deeply damaging. Sure. So I think it's this, the the importance of grief is number one, the importance of reclaiming. Well, I guess number two, I said the number one, the number two would be the importance of reclaiming what it means to be human, which is being mm-hmm. emotional and yeah. having emotions and being able, I think also our Western culture just doesn't do grief well. We mm-hmm. don't know how to grieve. And I think that's something that we could all very much benefit from learning how to do. Um, but it, I mean, I get it. I mean, I get why it's difficult to do because mm-hmm. for many of us, it wasn't taught to us as something permissible. And it wasn't modeled for us as something yeah. our parents did or our pastors or leaders did. Sure. But it's really important for the sake of reclaiming what it means, like, yeah, what it means to be human, but also like developing emotional resilience and emotional intelligence and emotional mm-hmm. health. 
Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I, I feel like I res- resonate with that so much. And like the, the process of getting back in touch with my emotions has felt so human, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it just feels like I'm, I'm like coming alive more and more, you know, and at this point it almost feels like an addiction where I'm like chasing yeah. that. Like I want to, I want to be even more human, like yes. more yeah. human than I've ever been before. Yes. But yeah, it, it feels really good. And it's, it's really encouraging for me now, like when I'm feeling things more strongly than ever, I think a year ago I would have been kind of scared by that or like freaked out mm-hmm. by my own emotions and not really known what to do with it. But at this point, after, you know, doing some of this work, um, it's, it's becoming more and more encouraging, even when I'm feeling things like anger or like rage or fury, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm feeling that thing. It's not necessarily bad. Like I'm a human. Mm-hmm. It's like good to feel this means something, you know? Um, yeah. So that's been a really yep. beautiful process for myself. And I think a lot of people who've been listening to the podcast have well have heard us talk about it and have been going through their own journeys mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, but yeah, great. Grief was one that when I read the book, I felt like I don't know if I really properly ever grieved the loss of mm-hmm. my faith. And yeah, I, I, so I, when I left the faith, I got super depressed for like mm. two years. Um, and I didn't realize that it was connected um, to, to me leaving Christianity. But like in hindsight, of course, I, like you're saying, I lost my, my father. I lost my life purpose. I lost like yeah. everything that yeah. I used to define the world I live in. Um, and yeah, it, it really made me kind of, when I read your book, it made me really stop and think, you know, like, mm-hmm. did I, did I grieve this? Did I really give it enough attention at the time? Or mm-hmm. uh, what I'm suspecting may have happened a bit for myself and what may happen for other people as well as you kind of leave Christianity and you start finding these other groups to be a part of like mm-hmm. evangelical groups or ex-Christian groups or, mm-hmm. or like go on uh, the what's it called? Atheism subreddit. And you see all these memes <laughs> and, and people like trashing Christianity and like, and, you know, absolutely roasting everything that you've been used to your entire life and that you've held dear. And it feels so much like, Oh, it's so cathartic all- right at first. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So it feels, it feels amazing. It feels like yep. such a relief to mm-hmm. like from all this guilt and this fear and whatever, it felt like such a relief to find other people who were making light of it and who are joking about it and who are kind of poking fun at it and stuff like that. But I also feel like there's, there may be something mixed into that where it's, it was easy for me to kind of skip over my grief because it made me feel like, well, all of these people who are atheists, it's like so obvious to them that Christianity is not real. Mm-hmm. And so like, I mainly just feel kind of dumb that I was Christian mm. for so long. And I, so I kind of want to just like get away from that and yep. be with like these cool people who think a lot smarter than I used to. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, Which when you think about it that way, like, how okay and I'll say this like not not intending to be shaming because I did it Mm -hmm. too like I this is more like yeah me too I totally did this like how mean to myself like how mean to my younger self that I was I needed so much to be like I don't know her like what do you know she's embarrassing (laughs) and I'm like she didn't have a choice yeah like she did no one gave her an option like yeah and I so for me, the mo- a big moment of compassion was in going through those six boxes and, you know, finding all this stuff and grieving. And when I sat back down to start finishing rewriting the the book, I had found a picture of myself on the day of my baptism. Whoa. I was, uh, I never remember if I was six or seven. I don't know why. I know, I think it was 93. I think I was six. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I was six. Okay. Um, and I set it on my desk while I finished the rest of it to just remind myself to look at her and be like, that's who I'm mad at. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, she's six. What the fuck does she know about yeah. what she's doing? <laughs> I just didn't want to be left out. All my yeah. friends were, I didn't even know what baptism was. They were all swimming in the small pool in the front of our <laughs> church. And I was like, what's that about? Don't, don't do leave that. me behind yeah. <laughs> because I had a lot of trauma as a six-year-old about being abandoned and yeah. like being left and being left out. And so I was like, well, make sure I'm included. That was why I was there. Yeah. And then I just kept going. So like she, she wasn't an adult with like decision-making faculties and made a bad choice. She yeah. was forced into something that then I left, you know, upon leaving I think it is in some cases a survival tactic to be like, Oh, that's so ridiculous. And that's why it's so cathartic Yeah, because you feel like when you started to see how 
unhelpful or even maybe absurd that belief system is. It feels so good to be in a, whether a real life situation or a subreddit with people who are like, yep, I see the same thing as you. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that can sometimes happen is our catharsis of how ridiculous becomes how could you in yeah. our own direction. Yeah. Most of us were children. We yeah. did not have a choice. And compassion in our own direction is a vital part of moving from a place of like disembodiment and trauma mm-hmm. And moving into an embodied, connected, um, healed, like like healed relationship with self. Yeah. And it's hard to get there if we're like, I've led a client through this once where he was like, he had so much compassion for his current self and what he was going through. And I was hearing in his his, his tone, his language, how like um, kind of mean he was being towards his past self when mm-hmm. uh, who had previously like been a missionary. And I was so we talked about this. I was like, dude, don't you think like he deserves some of this too. Like this compassion work isn't just for this moment right now or for a future you, you got to send that back in time Mm -hmm. too. That's really important. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. That has been my experience completely with like any kind of inner child work or just basically the idea of having compassion on your younger self um, Mm -hmm. has been so impactful for me. And I know the first time I read uh, Leaving the Fold, Marlene Winnell's book. Mm-hmm. Um, she has like a little guided inner child meditation in there. And I'd never done anything like that before, but I thought, you know mm-hmm. what, I'll, I'll just try it. So I did my little voice recording, like she tells you to do in the book and put some cheesy like spa music on in the background yeah. <laughs> and lay down and close my eyes. And I went through this thing and the, the visual visualization of hugging my younger self uh-huh. And like kissing him on the head and just saying, I'm here for you. Like, don't worry. Everything's going to work out. Like, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. I was just bawling. And I was, I was like, where did this, it surprised me, honestly, because I, I don't know. I, I, when I think about my past, I don't, I don't get a ton of stuff coming up. You know, it's, I feel like a lot of people obviously have things that majorly trigger them in their past and, and big emotional things that happen. But for me in general, you know, I think about my childhood, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It was, it was good. But going through this exercise made me realize how much of the time I was scared or I was suffering or I was, you know, terrified about hell as an eight year old and how, Uh how absurd that is. And it's so cathartic to go back now with like that, that I want to say holy anger, but like that righteous anger, not at, not at my younger self, not at my parents even, but just like the anger that younger me had to carry that burden. And man, yeah, just like that little visual of hugging myself cracked me wide open. And I found it so helpful since then to like just identify different memories in my past Mm -hmm. from the the point Mm -hmm. when I'm six to when I'm 18 to when I'm 22, whatever, and just go through and kind of do that same thing and basically tell my younger self it's all right. And it it honestly in a way feels like I'm editing my own past, Yes, you know, because it's crazy. That's trauma healing. That's literally, that's trauma healing. That's, that's what you're doing. Like, dude, I trauma processed my salvation experience with my therapist years ago because I realized at a certain point. So like the, the EMDR trauma processing experience of where you're recognizing a negative cognition Mm -hmm. and you're doing what you can to, to pinpoint a past experience, a memory that you have at least one that you have access to usually it goes deeper, but you can't get there yet. But pinpointing a memory connected to that negative cognition uh-huh. so where you learned that thing about yourself. And then you're staying in your body through eye movement or these things that tap on your palms mm-hmm. and you're going back and you're reprocessing that and you're literally changing the narrative of it yeah. in a different, in a different trauma processing setting. The, the thing that really clicked it for me with abandonment stuff with my mother and abuse with my mother was my therapist had prompted me to imagine my adult self going into the delivery room the day I was born and taking baby me out of the arms of the doctor before I, she was handed to my mother and walking out. And Mm -hmm. I shit you not, it healed something in my brain. And similar with trauma processing my salvation experience, I had a similar, I guess, because maybe he and I had done that before. He didn't have to prompt me into visualizing this scenario. What happened is I visualized adult me walking back into the room that I have a very vivid memory of from the day of my salvation, where I was Mm -hmm. in the pastor's office when I prayed the prayer. (laughs) And I was looking at me, tiny me, six-year-old me, who I had to have deep memories of uh, sitting in that chair and feeling like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I couldn't say no. 
And so adult me in this visualization made eye contact with child me. And she said to me, when you left, you didn't take me with you. Oh. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. So I walked over and I grabbed her. Similar, we're saying, I, I grabbed her hand and took her out of the chair and I hugged her really tight. And I said, I'm so sorry. I will never leave you again. Let's get out of here. And oh then walked God. her out of that office. And it was, <laughs> it was, it was huge because I had identified the kind of the, the memory attached to that negative cognition of like, oh my God, the salvation experience was the first time I heard my body say no. And I yeah. betrayed her. Yeah. That was the first time. Let's go back and rewrite that. Man. Let's heal that. Let's take her out of there yeah. and let my brain heal in a way to where it really does feel in your brain and body as if it never happened. Yeah. And that's possible to do. Man, that, that is so exciting to me. I'm, I'm so fascinated by how our brains and bodies work. It's like yeah. the coolest thing ever. It's so cool. Um, Even like something like EMDR, <laughs> they still don't really know like why it works. Yeah. They just know it does. It's so cool. That is so cool. Or like yeah. the EFT tapping. Yeah. Katie and yeah. I just rewatched for like the third or fourth time that heal documentary on Netflix. And there's one of the segments, there's a lady doing that. EFT tapping yeah. about someone with some childhood trauma. And we were on the couch, like weeping, like, Oh my God, I want yeah. that. I want some lady to sit right in front of me and tap my hand, my face. <laughs> and say things. Yeah, yes. totally. Yeah. yeah. It's really yep. exciting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. It's, it feels really good to have, it feels good that at least in my experience, I guess I don't want to speak for everyone, but it, it seems like you can, kind of open the door or kind of get like a small taste of what healing can feel like by doing some like pretty simple practical things Mm -hmm. on your own at home. Um, And at least I I think for me that like really helped fuel my passion, fuel my drive to like keep doing more stuff and keep uncovering things and figuring things out. And at this point, like I said, I feel like I'm almost an addict for it. I'm like, I want to get, I want to get everything out. I want to get all these like blocks out. I want to figure out what my limiting and beliefs are and all that. You're going to, yeah. you're going to love my course. Okay. <laughs> I know. It sounds like it. <laughs> what we're talking about right now is the, the, the lesson that I'm just this past week have mm-hmm. been building with my, my team has been this like treating just behavior as neutral data, not yeah. something to a good, bad so that you can, and talking about the nature of shame and, and a program shame response in our own direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then imagining kind of shifting it into this, like, uh, well, I don't want to give the whole thing away, but there will be this, like in every module, there's like the, the teaching and then a tool yeah. and the tool in this particular module talking about self-compassion is an inner child, like grief. it's, it's inner child grief, like visualization or oh, meditation. Amazing. And it's, it's basically this exact idea after three and a half years of being a facilitator with people and noticing how often the, a breakthrough comes for people when you make this link between like, okay, but like, think about your nephew. Or think about your daughter. Mm-hmm. Think, and, and if like if you can't get to conceptualizing you as a kid, think about a kid you currently love. Yeah. How would you speak to them? How would you like? What kind of reaction would you have for them to be going through this thing you're having a hard time coming to terms with right now? Mm-hmm. And it unlocks this grief. And then you can kind of take them into like, okay, but that's you also. Yeah. That yeah. was you 30 years ago. That was you 40 years ago. Totally. Can you stay in that place of grief and let compassion well up naturally in your own direction because you recognize that that grief is well-deserved? Yeah, that's beautiful. So it, it makes me think as well about um, the emotion of anger and the importance of that. And so mm-hmm. one thing I, I'm, I'm wondering about, I, when Katie and I started the podcast, our, one of the things we wanted to be very clear about is that we really, really didn't want to like follow this path of deconversion into a cynical place. Um, mm-hmm. cause we've noticed, we feel like a lot of, a lot of like the ex Christian stuff out there is obviously really cynical and really bitter and negative and, and full mm-hmm. of anger, like rightfully so, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think that we were really preoccupied with trying to stay open and like full of compassion and not go down that route of anger to the point that we, may not have really like allowed ourselves to express that. Mm, and uh-huh. me more than Katie, because I, my upbringing in my household, like I was never angry. Like I mm. just never expressed anger. And even to the point now is journaling the other day. And I'm like, I don't know if I have, I can't remember the last time I've like expressed anger. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that, that seems like an issue. Right there. <laughs> 
like that doesn't seem so, something seems a little weird about that. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, I, I wanted to ask you about that because I obviously I don't want to become like a bitter, cynical, negative person who's angry all the time. But on the other hand, I I don't want to be suppressing my anger and holding that down. And so, like, how do we ride that line? Mm-hmm. Well, anger is my favorite emotion and it's one of my favorite topics of conversation. Um, Wonderful. This is perfect. Because I think anger gets thrown under the bus so often because I think people are trying to dress other emotions or other experiences up in anger's clothes. And it's not fair because Mm. they're not anger. So thinking about the difference between anger and cynicism Mm -hmm. and the difference between anger and rage, they're, All of those three are fundamentally different things, Hmm. but cynicism and rage often get labeled as anger. And so we resist real, legitimate, healthy, transformative anger because we don't want to, because we've been told that like rage, cynicism is anger. And so we're like, well, I can't have any of that anger because I don't want to be cynical and I don't want to have a lot of rage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The way, the irony here is that the way that you get to cynicism and or rage and a host of other emotions that aren't actually anger is by not expressing your anger. Oh, but damn it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. You had to find out this way. But, I'm, but I think you kind of were already leading yourself there. Yeah, um, I think so. It, and, and here's the thing too. It is not your fault that you have uh, called rage anger or mm-hmm. that you've called cynicism anger. You've called a host of other hard emotions to hold and to feel and to express. Anger is, again you're not doing anything beyond what you were taught to do. Like you don't, you have the skills you have or lack the skills that you don't have because you either were taught them or they weren't given to you. So Mm -hmm. essentially, and I mean, it doesn't, I'm sure anyone listening to this could sit down and within 30 seconds come up with a laundry list of shitty things they were told about anger. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly those of us who were told that it was an unacceptable emotion to have in the direction of our parents um, because that made us disobedient and a disobedient child was the worst possible version of a yeah. tiny human to mm-hmm. be. Um, thanks, James Dobson. Um, <laughs> when in reality, anger is just an emotion. It's an emotion with tons of data, tons yeah. of information, all neutral information technically, because anger, just like any other emotion, has something to tell us about something that is happening or isn't happening. Generally with anger, Anger is there to tell us about something that isn't happening. Hmm. I, one of the things I say a lot, pretty sure I wrote it in the book, is that anger is an indicator of injustice. And what I think is really fascinating is as I'm working with people and working with clients, um, I encounter this a lot with them where they recognize within themselves they've been holding anger at bay usually for similar reasons, they they haven't wanted to either become the cynical people they've seen around or they haven't wanted to become one of their abusive parents. Yeah. Yeah. You have this story of like, I can't, I can't go near that thing. And again, being the daughter of an abusive mother, I resisted anger for a long time because I thought what she was, was angry. No, Mm -hmm. my mother had a lot of rage because she never expressed her anger. Mm -hmm. It bottled up and it built and it built and it built because who she was actually angry at were the people responsible for her childhood trauma and she yeah. never dealt with it. So who she became rageful towards were my dad and myself and my siblings. Yeah. And it was really harmful. And so unfortunately I, the church taught, taught me to call that anger. Right. My mom taught me to call that anger. So I was like, I can't, I can't be that. I can't do that. But what, so it was something that happened with a client just last night is that as we were holding space for what was coming up, she, it was really, it was honestly like a really profound session and she had like some really significant breakthroughs. And mm-hmm. when we kind of checked in, cause I'll, I'll in the sessions, like usually two or three times in an hour, it, it becomes a joke with people I work with at a certain point. Cause I'll be like this long space of silence. And I'll be like, what's going on in your body right now? And they're like, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that because that's my job. So I asked her, I was like, what's going on in your body right now? And she was saying that she was feeling certain things in certain places. And I was like, well, what do you think that's about? What do you think your body's telling you with that? And she was expressing this thing as essentially she said she felt a sense of like relief, relaxation and calm towards herself and a sense of rage towards the other people who had ever told her that the thing we had just been processing about mm. her was wrong. Yeah. And I just started crying because <laughs> I do that a lot. And I was like, look, I need to point something out to you that's really important because we are now entering into our like fourth month of working together. So we've mm-hmm. had couple of months under her belt. I know you pretty well at this point. 
what hasn't been expressed, but what has been there this whole time is this sense of calm in the direction of the people who have hurt you Mm -hmm. and a sense of rage towards yourself. Mm. Because when you're a child, and this is, again, something we'll go into, of course, um, the recognizing that like, when you are mistreated by either your religion, your primary caregiver, or the, you know, imaginary father, you are told by way of your religion. Yeah. Um, you don't have the ability to recognize that like what's happening to you is abuse. You just think you're doing something wrong to deserve what you're getting. Yeah. In order to survive those traumatic environments, that's the story we adopt and we keep until we learn that we, we can't keep it anymore. Um, and so the story we keep is like, there's something wrong with me. You, you who is hurting me, you're just responding appropriately to the wrong, to me being wrong. So a lot of the people I'm working with, and again, this manifests really clearly in the way, because I'm an embodiment coach, the way people treat their physical bodies. It's a Mm -hmm. representation of how they feel about themselves, where they will notice whether it's anything from self-harm to like self-destructive tendencies to even just for me, I just used to fucking scream at myself all the time for Mm -hmm. simple things. And it would scare me how much I, how much I like hated myself and my physical body apparently. And so what I was telling her is I was like, this moment is really enormous because what we don't need to do is get rid of your rage, get rid of your anger. We don't need to try and yell at any emotion and tell it it can't be here because that's not treating emotions as neutral data. Yeah. But we need to figure out where the emotions actually need to belong. And what you just did through this process is you finally, on a very real level, put things where they belong, which is that the people that you've been your survival skill was telling yourself like, well, there was nothing wrong with them. And they, they treated me poorly because I deserve to be treated poorly. And Mm -hmm. so you're raging towards yourself all the time. You in this process of seeing yourself clearly, holding space for your body, getting to know your body, you are now realizing you are okay. You are good. Even like (laughs) you deserve to be with you and to validate who you are. And now you're mad at them. Yeah. And you're mad at them. You are mad at them because you know, something happened that shouldn't have happened, Yeah, which means you are in this present moment, correctly assessing your past experience and say, and so now you have the perspective of 40 year old you instead of four year old you, and you can say, Oh my God, if I'm feeling angry towards you, I know what you did is wrong. So now I know I deserved different. If <laughs> yeah. I know I deserved differently, then now I know some really important information about what I believe about myself. Yeah. So anger is such an important part of healing, of the grief process, of the healing process, because when you can access your anger, it's your ability to say what happened to me should never have happened because I didn't deserve it. Yeah. And in many cases, when you can't or are not accessing that anger, not always, but in many cases, you are still often without knowing it operating under the assumption of the story that what happened to me is something I deserved. And it's playing into this like internal, this again, the story in the work I do with clients in the intake form, mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out what those underlying stories are. Yeah. What are the stories that shaped you? What are the stories you've been forced to believe about yourself? If you haven't accessed that anger, chances are you are still believing you are someone who deserves to be harmed, deserves to be unloved, deserves to be left, or deserves, you know, fill in the blank with any number of things. Yeah. So when we start to access that anger, it's our it's our avenue, it's our way, it's our it's our path forward into saying like this shouldn't have happened to me. It shouldn't happen to anyone else, mm-hmm. and we need to do something to make sure it doesn't happen yeah. to anyone else. Again. Yeah. And that actually is when you when you do that you're kind of letting off the steam of the thing that if you're not doing that usually builds into the cynicism or like gets suppressed so much to the point where it eventually like explodes into a rage. Yeah. So I just I think it is so it's just it's such a transformative emotion. And authoritarian systems want us to believe that it's an evil emotion because mm-hmm. our anger has the power to transform unjust systems. If enough people are legitimately powerfully angry about what evangelical Christianity is teaching to children, eventually we'll start changing that system. Totally. And it won't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So I, f- I find that when I'm feeling stuck or like feeling angry and don't know where to put it, it generally is helpful for me to just sit down and just write out everything that I'm thinking. Um, but do you have any other, any other like pointers or tips for if someone's doesn't know what to do with this feeling of what they're calling anger, but they don't really know Mm -hmm. how to sort it out? Like 
how do they figure it out? You know, how do you sort that stuff out? You got to learn that it is not only acceptable, but super healthy to move it through your body, which means all those temper tantrums you were throwing as a child were not disobedience. They were emotional regulation. Yeah. <laughs> and if you got in trouble for trying to move anger through your body when you were a kid, you probably need to reclaim your ability to move anger through your body. It's one of the best ways to get in touch with it and to let it go. Um, I literally have a punching bag right there in my office. <laughs> right outside the screen. <laughs> that, yeah, right here. I can even show you. It's right there. There it is. There it is. Verified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I use that a lot. That has been really helpful. Um, If you can't afford or don't want a punching bag, um, I once went through um, a course with uh, this woman, Morgan Day Cecil, who also is a former evangelical, also holds a lot of space for um, female identified um, individuals who have Mm -hmm. left because that's kind of her work is with like women. Um, And so, and I assume probably non-binary folks too, but um, just not like the, you know, the masculine experience or male experience of, you know, during your formative years of mm-hmm. evangelicalism. I also could be wrong about that. Who knows? Anyway, at the time when I took one of her courses, it was geared towards, you know, kind of like uh, feminine wholeness. Okay. And one of the things that she had us do was throw a temper tantrum on our beds. <laughs> like, that sounds it was, great. <laughs> it was fucking awesome. And it was so cool as an adult to have someone be like, do it. Like, yeah. You have my- yeah. Do the thing you couldn't do because chances are there's a lot of emotion there that needs to come out somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, she recommended the bed because she's like, it's a soft spot. There's a lot of pillows. There's a mattress. So just flail your body around yeah. move it through you. Um, I, some of my clients, I tell them to dance intensely or like rage dance. Uh-huh. Sometimes I do that. Yeah. Um, breaking shit that, you know, needs to be broken or can be broken is really cathartic. Some uh-huh. cities have rage rooms when it's, you know, non-COVID times. And yeah. Literally, there are places that these rage rooms exist where it's just, you know, dishes and, you know, various old electronic appliances. Uh-huh. And you can just smash them and, like, hit them with a bat. Like, moving this emotion through your physical body yeah. is incredibly important for learning how to regulate your own relationship to it. And also learning that it's not going to swallow you whole Mm -hmm. and take you over and never give you back. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we're, a lot of us are really afraid of with anger is we're like, if I express anger, then I will be an angry person. I will become an angry person. Yeah. It's just not true. If that starts to happen, there's probably something going on under there. And you probably need to talk to someone about what's getting stuck. Sure. And someone can help you get what is stuck unstuck. But that story of I don't want to be an angry person, keeping us from getting in touch with our anger at all is is not helpful. Totally. So I'm a big fan of physical expressions of nice. anger. Nice. Cool. <laughs> yeah. A coach I was working with last year at as you were talking, I just remembered that he was like, what do babies do when they're upset? They, they have breath movement and sound. And he was like, yeah. just pick those things and do that and see yeah. how you feel after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I was first working with him, he, I tend to be really soft-spoken and I've been like, I was always such a good kid as a Christian and super obedient and quiet and mm-hmm. the rules and all that stuff. And uh, so one of the exercises that I was doing with him was to do some breath work and then scream into a pillow. Yeah, and the f- that it felt amazing. I was like shocked because I I was like, yep. when is the last time I've like full power screamed? Maybe never. Maybe yeah. I was like five. You know, I just yeah. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But I was doing that, and Katie walked in the room and was like, "Are you okay? Like, what is? Are you? I've never heard that before." <laughs> she was very shocked. So. Do it alone or tell your partner. If yeah, you're living, tell, tell just your warn yeah. people. Like if you have neighbors, just let them know. Yeah. Don't call. You don't need to call anyone. I'm not being murdered. <laughs> I, I'm having a cathartic experience. Emotion. That's yeah. right. That's right. And I imagine like Katie walking and be like, are you okay? And you're like, I'm better than I've ever been. Like, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm crying and I'm like, my face is all red and my voice yeah. is all hoarse. I'm like, I'm doing so well. I'm doing so well. I'm really well. great. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> yeah. I called after that really emotional session last night. Uh-huh. I had missed a call from my boyfriend and I called him back and I was like, still, cause I got off that call and just sobbed because I'm yeah. like, my job is amazing. I love this, you know? <laughs> so I like, I called him back and I was still kind of like a little teary and I had told him, I was like, sorry, it took me a minute. I had to stop crying. And he was like, Oh my God, what happened? And I was like, Oh no, 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 no. This one was a good cry. That yeah. happens like 50% of the time. <laughs> Half my cries are like, Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And yeah, I was like, yeah. you don't, 
he was like, well, it still spikes my cortisol. Like I'm still worried something's wrong. I was like, well, uh-huh. you can maybe, you'll need to work through that. Because yeah. I usually oh don't gosh. need much when I'm crying because yeah. it's usually a good cry. <laughs> nice. So I am that person that would be like, tears streaming down my face like red face and be like i'm better than i've ever been yeah i honestly i feel like in the last year the um percentage of time or the more the i've been crying basically way more than i ever have before but it's amazing mm-hmm. and i love yes. it and it's it's it feels good to it feels good to feel honestly yes doesn't um, it? So yeah chasing it's after great. that yeah yeah so all right jamie well this has been so helpful. I feel like we could talk about stuff for much longer, but I want to wrap up here. Um, but before we do, I know you've talked a lot about your course and obviously I think a lot of your listeners know about your book already, but for those who don't, um, could you just let everyone know where to find you and kind of what you're up to? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so I've got a website, jamieleefinch.com. Um, there from there you can navigate to most of the things that exist right now um so various social media handles like on twitter and instagram um on twitter i'm just jamie lee finch on instagram i'm i am jay finch um i don't really use facebook so don't worry about it um but also on my website you can navigate to i have a membership space now um it's just so much better for my brain and mental health to not predominantly operate on social media or communicate through social media. Mm-hmm. But I had heard from enough people through my previous communications on social media that a lot of the things I would share were impactful and meaningful. So I've now predominantly navigated to that space. There's like weekly posts and there's monthly video calls and um, there's a lot of like community engagement as well mm-hmm. as stuff that I like teach and share oh, from awesome. my journey. And then also the stuff I'm like past journey and also stuff I'm, you know, doing now. Um, so there is, that's at, on a platform called Podia, but the best way to navigate to that is just to go to jamieleefinch.com and there's a, immediately at the top, there's a little bar you can click on for membership space. Um, and then that same platform, Podia, will be where my course will eventually be hosted. Um, if you follow me on social media, you will find out about it once it's open for enrollment. It okay, is more cool. than likely going to be open for um, enrollment, like pre-sale stuff in February. And we're planning on having it opened up in March. Um, like I said, it'll be a kind of go through mostly at your own pace. We'll probably do it in a style that's like open for enrollment, like three times a year. Mm -hmm. It'll just live in perpetuity. So you'll just pay one time, get lifetime access to it. Cause I just want people to have this information and have these tools, um, in a way that makes the most sense for people to have them. So, there's a number of things I'm yeah, working on at the moment and trying to do. Um, but yeah, best places to stay in touch would just be through social media or in that membership space right now. Cool. Awesome. Well, for everyone listening, I will put links to that stuff in the description of the episode. Um, and yeah, that's it. Awesome. Thank you. Right, cool. Since recording this episode, Jamie has moved her membership space to a new URL, and that is jamieleefinch.mn.co, and you can head there via the link in the description. Enjoy! Enjoy!